Welcome to the final episode of season three of the Growth Medium podcast. I know it's been a while since you've heard my voice and you're probably thinking, why has it taken so long? If you follow me on Insta, you've probably had a bit more of an insight, but between becoming an individual podcast and starting a new job, it's been so, so busy. But anyway, let's end this season with a bang. Welcome to season three of the Growth Medium podcast. My name is Mim and I'm a biochemistry graduate from Queen Mary and as you can guess, a co-host of The Growth Medium. This season, we talk to experts like Dr. Migat Arif and Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn. Together, we unpack the myths and misinformation around women's health. We are also joined by many brave individuals who honoured us by sharing their stories and experiences with things like PCOS, endometriosis, and much, much more. Join us every Monday here on The Growth Medium so we can grow our mindsets together. Enjoy! So yes, the growth medium is a solo endeavor now. So it'll just be me doing these episodes and the Instagram and everything. And honestly, I'm excited to see where I'll take it now that I have full control. It only makes sense then that the finale is something that shows growth. So yeah, we're doing a reflective episode. Who would have thought? Just a trigger warning, we will be talking about some potentially violent and upsetting experiences. So please feel free to skip this if it's not appropriate for you. Anyway, on to the episode Let's split this episode into three main takeaways that I got from researching and talking to our incredible guests this season. Make sure to let me know if you agree with these takeaways or not. Always, you know, you can hit me up in the DMs. But my main three takeaways are one, maybe listen to women. Two, individual agency and choice should be prioritized. And three, and probably the most controversial one, the science just isn't there. So what do I mean by maybe listen to women? I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but I do think that throughout the season, we've seen so many cases of downplaying or outright ignoring the stories that women share about their experiences with, you know, certain symptoms or pain, doctor's experiences, etc. And this isn't something that I feel is unique at all. You know, it doesn't take long to scroll on TikTok or Twitter and to find many, many stories, videos, Twitter threads, etc. of women being ignored by their healthcare professionals or their doctor, their nurse, etc. And I think the one that probably, the kind of one example that probably stands out to me the most is when women are denied pain relief for what is commonly seen as routine procedures. And we all know it, the most common one so far, the one that's been popping off on TikTok, has been IUD insertion. I'm going to touch on that a little bit, but first I want to read out a story that I found on Reddit so you can hopefully get an idea of the kind of worries that women go through when they are considering, you know, procedures and other options. So, you know, usual disclaimers this is one story and i don't want these stories to put you off ever going to a healthcare professional so a doctor or a nurse should you so need one remember our experiences are so individual and unique and you need to go to your medical team if you have a query or concern at the same time i don't want to downplay the potentially traumatic experiences that some women may have had at their doctor's office so yeah so let's get into the story My doctors have been shrugging off my pain and medical requests. Am I just being dramatic? So, some background. 
I, 17 female, have endometriosis and experience lots of menstrual pain and complications. I was an early bloomer and have been having a period since I was around 9 or 10. I've had to go to hospital before for deficiencies caused by excess blood loss. My periods are no joke. I've passed out and vomited on multiple occasions from cramps and I've had to become homeschooled because my periods are so painful and irregular I can't function outside of bed. I've been on the pill since I was 11 and in those six years, almost seven, I have tried just about every pill there is. Okay, let's take a quick break from this. This really is reminding me of Taslima from our PCOS episode. I will touch on that a bit later in this episode, but lots of similar things, long periods, a lot of pain and lots of time of school. So, you know, I don't think we're really having a fun time here. Okay, anyway, let's get back into the story. So, I now wish to try an IUD and my OBGYN said that she believed it to be a great idea as she has one herself. I brought up the fact that I'm concerned with the pain level I may experience because my mother compared hers as worse than childbirth. I told her how I wish to go under anesthesia for a procedure and get pain meds for afterwards. She told me I was being excessive. I know it's not common practice to give anesthesia, but I've never had my cervix dilated before and having sex is even just painful, as well as the internal ultrasounds I've had to receive to diagnose my endometriosis. I have talked to my doctors and they have all told me anesthesia, besides cervical numbing injections, which also isn't even standard procedure, is excessive and inferred I was being dramatic and just too weak to handle pain. I am tired of the pain. I'm tired of not being able to live my life. I feel as if the healthcare system has failed me. I have basically accepted the fact that no matter what, I will suffer in some way. So I have an appointment for April 1st, but I'm not sure I want to go through with it without anesthesia. What should I do? That was a heavy one. This is something I hear a lot. And the thing is, I don't want to scare anyone from getting an IUD. And personally, I don't know what it feels like. So I can't share my experience. But what I have heard is that it can be painful. And obviously for this girl who has endometriosis, I can sympathize because she's 17 and she's incredibly worried about this invasive procedure and having it done with no pain management. I've heard a few reasons for the anesthesia not being, you know, standard practice in IUD surgeons, but the main one seems to be that there's different types of pain that can occur from IUDs. So there's the actual insertion that might be painful, but then you might also get painful cramping afterwards. So you might be given local anesthesia that would help the insertion pain, but not for the cramps. See what I mean? But then I also do think that the type of pain management you get or if you get any at all is quite dependent on your practice and your country. Of course, that makes sense. But Dr. Nigat Arif, who we've had as a guest, she's a GP with a special interest in women's health. She talks about in her practice that she does offer pain management. So it's something to definitely talk about and discuss and see what the best option for you is. And I think that's what it really comes down to. Even though pain meds for IUD insertion specifically might be quite complex, it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be offered, right? I think a lot of the com- uh, frustration comes from the fact that there isn't a discussion when it comes to pain meds. And yes, I gave the example of IUD insertion here, but this happens a lot of the time. People who identify as women often talk about the concerns with the healthcare professional. I'm going to say HCP from now on, it's just quicker. And are often ignored or they're told they're being too dramatic. And this is something that's very historical it's very ingrained into our medical system and it's something that we talked about with Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn from our Evolution of Women's Health episode. Here's what she had to say about it. <laughs> I know it's it's bananas but it's another one of these long-standing myths that there that existed 
probably since the beginning of medical time in somewhere or another, but particularly came to the fore in the 19th century again, that there was this consent or sympathy between the female reproductive organs and a woman's mind. And that there was a sort of nervous kind of channel almost. And that what was happening in, in the ovaries or uterus could influence personality and behavior and temperament and vice versa. And there are a lot of theories that emerged in the 18th century around nerves and around sort of channels for human emotion and feeling. And this was at a time when doctors were truly trying to figure out like, where does emotion come from? What is sensation? How does it actually happen in the body? How is it manufactured? Now, of course, again, 18th century, very patriarchal society, medicine is completely male dominated. And the doctors come up with this idea that women are preternaturally and inherently nervous, that their nerves are very refined, that they're at the mercy of these kind of nerves that they can, and therefore that they can become very sort of emotional and untamed and unruly. And they link this very much to the reproductive apparatus. So theories about the ovaries being linked to the emotions, there was a few different gynecologists who postulated ideas that because the ovaries were discovered to have play a role in, in the menstrual cycle, that they thought there was like this nervous trigger that was happening from the ovaries to the rest of the body. And it goes back to the old thing that, you know, menstruation makes us completely bats and crazy. And it's really embedded in this theory that there's sort of this nervous sensibility between the ovaries and uterus and a woman's mind. And I think we see this play out today when, especially when conditions and illnesses related to menstruation such as endometriosis, or life cycle events like menopause, perimenopause, puberty, things that are centered around a woman's reproductive organs, around her menstrual cycle, always seem to first be put down to anxiety, stress, emotion, and not down to something that's just happening in the body that needs to be understood as such. And this is because of this really long precedent that, you know, women be crazy because ovaries, women be crazy because womb, which was really, you know, this justification for whipping them out in the 19th century. Um, and now, you know, we're, thankfully, we're not exactly advocating for uh, surgical removal of ovaries if a woman is depressed, but there's still this tendency to dismiss anything gynecological in the first instance as, as mental health, as emotional as psychological. So I think it's safe to conclude that listening to women, really considering their concerns and opening up discussion is something that can hugely benefit women's health. So yeah, maybe listen to women? The next takeaway was that individual choice and agency should be prioritized. This is something that I guess follows up from the last point because of course, listening to women, giving them options and getting full informed consent empowers people to make choices that are perfect for them. But we know that hasn't been the case. Historically, and still to this day, many women are often directly or indirectly encouraged, and I'm saying that with quotation marks, to take a choice that's not really beneficial for them. It's something that's now becoming the focus of the Sustainable Development Goals. Weird connection, but hear me out. If you don't know what the SDGs are, they're basically a set of quite vague 
goals that were set by the United Nations in 2015 following the Millennium Development Goals, I think they were called, and it's hoped that these are reached by 2030. The idea behind these goals is to essentially create a better and more sustainable future for everyone. Now, one of those goals is to achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. And that seems like a fairly simple goal, right? But there is a whole or there are a whole host of reasons why we're behind on that and one in the healthcare space particularly is the lack of agency in a commentary piece by dr anita raj i've linked in the show notes she states that empowerment requires the movement of disempowered individuals or groups to move from critical consciousness of their choices and goals to choices and aspirations to then action and agency And I guess that process makes sense, right? So first you're doing something because you have to do it. Then you're dreaming about doing something and achieving something. And finally, you have the free opportunity to make that choice or achievement. Now, shifting back to the health aspect of it, Raj discusses how contraceptive use is often used as a measure of women's agency. But as Raj argues, and I absolutely agree with, using something like contraceptive use to essentially say that yay women have agency really undermines the more nuclear power struggles now before you're like what the hell let me explain what i mean so ultimately it may be up to an individual person as to whether they want to take birth control or go for an abortion but there are a multitude of reasons that lead to that decision and a lot of them will be out of the individual's control so simple things like Is this individual being coerced by their partner or immediate family affecting their decision? To more institutional things like is there funding to ensure that things like birth control are accessible, affordable and safe for women? Just kind of an example of that more institutional restriction, I guess. The Texas Heartbeat Act is an incredibly controversial bill that was signed off, I think, in September 2021 and is what I believe a heavy attack on women's choice. Now, I'm sure you didn't miss out on this info because it was all over Twitter TikTok, I'm assuming the American news, I don't know. But it's still something that is heavily debated today. But if you did miss it, essentially it's an act that bans abortions from when the heartbeat of the fetus is developed around six weeks. Problem is, women in the US typically find out that they are pregnant around the five to six week mark. Again, paper is linked in the show notes. So yeah, imagine you find out you're five weeks pregnant and for whatever reason you want to abort and now you have a week to, you know, process all of that and make that decision. Or imagine you're seven weeks pregnant and just found out now you have absolutely no control of getting abortion in Texas. It's insane. I hope I'm not coming off too theoretical, modelly, political or really abstract right now, but I just came across this piece of commentary and wanted to bring it in to this episode and really my mind went immediately to how this process outlined by Dr. Raj is not being applied to the US. And I'm sure you know, it wasn't something that existed in the past either. Here's what Dr. Eleanor Cleghorn had to say about the issues surrounding contraceptive use. Lots of the resistance to birth control in those early decades of the 20th century was ideological, was religious. It was to do with preserving this traditional unit of the family. And also, I believe, in a general fear around giving women freedom and choice around what they did with their bodies. And, you know, it rather upsets the patriarchal apple cart to enable women to have economic freedom. So if they can choose when to have babies, that also means they're able to work, which means they can live independently, which means that they, you know, that certain rights around how 
they're allowed to live have to be shifted. It's to do with maintaining a sort of patriarchal societal status quo. And I think that's where a lot of the ideological kind of fear came from. You know, when the pill was first introduced into Britain, so in the 60s, you know, at first it was only prescribed, it was prescribed off-label for conditions including endometriosis because they were all for menopause issues because they were not explicitly allowed to say that it prevented pregnancy. Pregnancy prevention was a side effect. And it was because governments didn't, the government didn't want to appear to be endorsing the dismantling of the ideal traditional family unit. And, you know, at the time as well, it was very difficult to get it unless you were married. So it's like, okay, if you're married and you have some kids, you can go to a doctor and say, look, I've, you know, I've had enough kids or I'm you know, not well or I can't go through another pregnancy. Okay, fine. But if you weren't married, there was a real stigma around getting hold of it. It was still a doctor's choice. And, you know, I've heard stories about women passing wedding rings around waiting rooms in the early 60s so that they could pretend they were married so that they could get it. So it's always been that thing that's been kind of dangled in front of women. Like you can have a little bit of freedom. You can have a little bit of choice, but we will give you permission. We, this system of power that medicine absorbs and and reflects, we will decide if it's your, you know, we will always retain a little bit of that hold over you. And, you know, now, of course, it is our choice. We can choose. There is not a medical hold over contraceptive choices but there still is a medical and legal hold around for example the right to abortion you know we still have to have two doctors sign off on it and although you know it's rarely in this country refused there's still this old legacy that when it comes to decisions about our bodies that the ultimate decision doesn't lie with us it lies with medicine or with the system of power that medicine represents and of course this is something that is high in all of our minds at the moment when we look at what happened very recently in Texas when abortion has been made effectively illegal Um, and we think about how precarious those rights are and how if we really you know return all those rights and decisions to women themselves you know what a sort of incalculable amount of suffering and ill health will actually be avoided so it is it is fascinating the way that yeah these the history of birth control was about liberation, but it was also about kind of testing how much freedom you're going to give women over their bodies, right? Like little bit by little bit. Because ultimately, you know, that sort of traditional patriarchal model in this country was was the most important to governments, most important to the architects of these new liberative freedoms, at least in the beginning. Yeah, sometimes I wonder how much progress we've actually made. Anyway, if you're interested in the effect of this bill so far, it looks like in February 2022, total number of abortions performed on Texan residents fell by 59% compared to August of 2021. Previously, around 85% of abortions in Texas happened after the six-week mark, and a study by the University of Texas suggests that the bill would prohibit 80% of abortions, and of course, this proportionally affects black women, women from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, and women who live far away from an abortion clinic. Obviously, that 80 and 85% numbers, they don't match exactly, but I hope you can appreciate the scale of this bill 
feel it's just incredible how many people this will affect and now if you're not convinced that choice alone and agency alone is a valid reason not to restrict abortion rights i'll just briefly touch on the health implications so one of the most interesting reasons for legalized abortions is the idea that restricting it doesn't actually prevent abortions it just makes them unsafe what this means is that women will resort to so-called back alley methods like different drug combinations trying to break the amniotic fluid sac from inside the womb i believe hangers were used in the past yeah and pumping toxic mixtures into the body now obviously these methods are incredibly dangerous and can even result in death in august 2018 elizabeth a 24 year old mother of two actually died from septic shock and infection after attempting an abortion using parsley this happened in argentina where around 500,000 illegal abortions are performed every year and at least 40 of those women will die yeah it can be said that restricting abortion doesn't actually reduce abortions effectively but does make them much more dangerous to conclude i know this section started off as women's agency and it should be prioritized and of course it should be and i hope you understand that choice particularly when it comes to reproductive rights is incredibly important to ensure safety and now finally the last part the science isn't there and this might be the most controversial takeaway from this season i'm not saying that we haven't made huge strides in understanding women's health and science in general but i think that there's genuinely not enough known about various elements of women's health and there's also an element of the more you know the less you know like i don't know if people have heard that before but i feel like it's one of those things where it's essentially the more you look into something the more you research something the more kind of questions you have about that topic and it's actually the way i started my undergraduate personal statement some ridiculousness about oh i want to study biochemistry because i want to answer all these unending questions and there's a constant question answer cycle yeah i was a complete geek but it's true it's true the more you know the less you know and that's definitely a thing when it comes to women's health and research in women's health it's important to highlight that traditionally women have been seen as kind of miniature men when it comes to health research in general in the 20th century most study participants were actually only white males and those findings were kind of just generalized to all populations and i think that's what led us to huge misunderstandings i give this example all the time but it's heart attack signs in males versus females there's different signs that a woman or a female will project and we miss those because women weren't study participants and i think it's only in the 1980s where women started being recruited in these studies and the impacts of that are still being felt today Here's a question about study design that I asked Dr. Nigat Arif relating to the COVID-19 vaccinations and menstrual cycle. I said it before and I get shot down every single time for saying it, but unfortunately we have misogyny within the healthcare sector. Women are only seen as part of procreation. Once you procreate and you get to the other side of it, then that's it. You're really not fit for purpose anymore. And I know that sounds really harsh me saying it, but we see that all the time and it's okay maybe it's not just the healthcare sector but there is but then we also have internalized misogyny so misogyny within women groups classically you know we'll say you just have to look at any household at all if a woman is having symptoms or god forbid she suffered a miscarriage the the common thing is well i had a miscarriage put up with it grin and bear it suck it up this is exactly what we expect this is to be expected this is what happens with us women 
There's a quote that I read that was really interesting, actually, that said, a woman wrote, I saw my mother go through her problems. I'm going through my problems. I'll be damned if I see my daughter go through this. And, and, it, and, I, and I have that on my wall in my room, in my clinical room. And I think about it every single time I see a woman in my surgery. Because why is it that if a woman has a miscarriage, all menstrual problems, all gynecological issues, that we ask her to put up with it and grin and bear it? We don't offer women pain relief to have a coil insertion because it's seen as gas and air is too expensive. So we give them paracetamol ibuprofen. We give women countless amounts of hormonal therapy and say, do you know what? And if you're getting side effects, grin and bear it. We haven't actually found a solution to diagnosing endometriosis early until she's got adhesions that can only be seen on a laparoscopy. Women's menopausal symptoms are ignored. So women are told all the time, grin and bear it. So if I, as a woman, grin and bear it, what am I going to teach my daughter in the future? That surely has to change and that cycle has to break. And that will come from women allowing other women and validating their experience. Their lived-in experience of pain has to be validated. Not saying put up with it. So that has to come from us as women. So women supporting women first and then allowing us to be empowered enough to fight the system. And it's happening. It is happening. And I see it happening. And it is gradually happening. Look at you guys. You're doing this. Look at, look at myself. I'm talking about these issues, which were never spoken about. I get so much abuse, actually, on social media for talking about periods as a Muslim woman. That's the first thing I get. Just for some context, in that episode, I was asking Dr. Nagat about the COVID-19 vaccination trials and how the menstrual cycle wasn't, you know, a thing that was considered in the study. And really, why wasn't that the case? And it seems from what Dr. Nagat said, but also my own research, is that menstrual cycles aren't considered or measured in these studies for a few reasons. One of them being that, yes, we expect changes in the menstrual cycle when there's a vaccination. That just makes sense. But also, a lot of the time, there's this excuse that menstrual cycles, considering them, is just too complicated because you would have to get all the women in the same phase and account for the different phases of the menstrual cycle, etc, etc. Now, how much this excuse has merit, I don't know because I'm not someone who's worked in clinical trials before. It's not something that I know much about and I really want to be transparent about that. But surely it should be considered and it can be done. And really the conversation that I had with Dr. Nagat was if we have more women in higher positions in STEM leadership, can this be measured? And her answer and my answer to that is probably, yeah, like probably it'd be something that's thought about before we actually going into the studies. Recently, there's been a huge push to get more funding for PCOS and endometriosis research in the UK. For both of these conditions, we still don't know the causes. And it's interesting because the symptoms have a debilitating impact on everyday life. I talked about earlier how the story from Reddit of the 17-year-old girl who wants to do an IUD or who wants to get an IUD, her story reminded me of Tasima Zaman. Here's a little look into how PCOS has affected Tasima. tired this fatigues a thing yeah and i don't know it could be just pure laziness or it could i did get it's like when you have prolonged periods of bleeding you do get tired because of you're course, losing so yeah. much blood like my hemoglobin count was really low at that point mm-hmm. so you do get tired and then 
when you've got this pain to deal with, you don't want to eat. You're eating all over the place. You're not getting energy from anything. Mm -hmm. So it really is just something to kind of like, you have to get over it in a sense. You have to bring yourself out of that rut that you're in. Yeah. You're just in bed constantly all day. Yeah. How did it affect your school? And so I was that? in GCSE, yeah, and mm. my attendance was pretty crap. It was like 60%. Oh, my God. And it was... I, I missed a lot of mocks that were happening at the time because that's when I was in hospital. And you do kind of think, am I going to be able to do this and that because I'm missing so much school, but past. So. <laughs> yeah. And then when you were actually during school and this all was happening, was yeah. the school like quite like understanding about the yeah, situation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, were. that's good. Because I know that a lot of teenagers, especially when they're kind of like at that 16 to mm -hmm. 18 age, they might say they have heavy periods. It might be PCOS, it might be endo. They don't know because they're, no. like, they're not going to It is check. quite a hard thing to diagnose because sometimes you can take up to like six years to fully have a diagnosis. When you start, it will be up and down. So that's yeah. why doctors don't usually diagnose so early. Yeah. Unless they have a lot of like yeah, proof I think, from stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think with endometriosis, the average time it takes is like seven and a half years yeah. to get diagnosed, which obviously when you're young and you're a teenager and you've just gotten your period maybe a few years they're ago. To, yeah. They're trying to let you have some time. They're trying to let you have some time, but also it's hard, I guess, to bring it up to the school that, hey, I do have a heavy period. Yeah. I am in a lot of pain. They don't take you seriously. No, like, my longest one was like 10 months. Oh my God. In that PCOS episode, I also talked to Alex Williams, a registered associate nutritionist. And here's what she had to say about the causes or lack of known causes for PCOS. Yeah, so we do have these unique phenotypes of PCOS, which is a relatively recent kind of discovery, I suppose. It means that you can categorize it into A, B, C or D type PCOS and A is when you have all three of the criteria to diagnose it so you have the high androgen levels you have the cysts on the ovaries which is seen during an ultrasound and you have the lack of periods or um, ovulation or you have irregular periods or irregular ovulation so type A is kind of considered the most severe type of PCOS and people with this type have been seen um, to have higher risk of metabolic and cardiovascular outcomes whereas D type D PCOS is kind of considered the least severe so that's kind of how that works in alternative medicine some people are trying to find like the root cause and whether it's like adrenal um, PCOS or post pill PCOS there's a few different ones there which ones we just don't have enough evidence to kind of pinpoint it down to the cause yet and yeah we just don't have the evidence to say whether it's one thing okay that's interesting because i've seen a lot of pcos advocates on instagram and stuff i wouldn't know that there were different types of pcos if i hadn't gone and looked for it i've seen a lot of stuff about you know adrenal pcos and um post pill pcos i didn't realize that was a thing but yeah and i feel similarly a lot of people when they're first diagnosed with pcos most are really just told to go and lose weight or go on the pill to regulate their periods. And a lot of them don't realize actually what's wrong. So is it that they have the high androgens or the high insulin? So we're not even sure if the weight management or the birth control control will work for them. What do you think about this way of dealing with PCOS and is it actually beneficial? Yeah, I completely agree. I don't think it's beneficial for people to be sent away from the doctor without understanding their PCOS or PCOS just as a whole or having, you know, they're often sent away without tools to help them. So like you said, it's kind of, it's well, it's three things usually. It's lose weight, go on the pill or come back when you want to get pregnant or a combination of those. And 
I think when we think about health, we tend to think about nutrition and exercise for everyone, but especially for people with PCOS, there's so many more factors to think about. We've got those, that sleep, that rest, the stress, the supplementation before you even add in nutrition and exercise. So a lot of people think that losing weight will be the cure for PCOS. First of all, there's no cure, unfortunately, it's something we manage. But second of all, you maybe think it's gonna help your symptoms. We know that people of all shapes and sizes can get PCOS. It's not that being in a larger body causes PCOS or anything like that at all. And we actually know that dieting can exacerbate symptoms of PCOS. So long-term, it can um, increase levels of fatigue, which is already a problem in PCOS. It can increase insulin levels and increase inflammation. And chronic inflammation is something that's associated with PCOS. So in the long-term dieting, restriction will actually do more harm than good so it's just this blanket recommendation of saying lose weight it really it doesn't address the the issue like you said and it doesn't it's not a sustainable way of looking at your health So yeah, more basic research needs to happen in so many areas of women's health to really understand what's going on and ultimately benefit people who identify as women. And that brings me to the end of this episode. It's so interesting. I thought this was going to be like an hour long, but really it's short and sweet, 20 minutes. But just to recap, you and I, we had a discussion about the importance of listening to women. And I talked specifically about IUD insertion, which was really a hot topic recently. We also talked about women's agency and freedom of choice when it comes to medical decisions. And used abortion in the USA and in Argentina as an example of the consequences that stripping agency can have. And lastly, and surprisingly the shortest section, I talked about how more research needs to be done in many areas of women's health and talked a little bit about PCOS specifically. It was a hefty season, full of loads of stories and depressing realities of the complexity of women's health, but also the lack of structure, systems, and I would argue, appropriate mindset to really take these issues seriously. And just in terms of the growth medium, there was a dramatic change in the team. So now we're a one woman show and that unfortunately led to this season being cut short and being sporadic. But don't worry, we'll be back soon with the season four. So make sure to follow us on all your favorite podcasting platforms, socials, so that you can stay up to date. And if you've had any thoughts about the season or women's health in general, or you just want to argue with me, please have a conversation with me over on the socials. I'm always ready to talk and learn. Until next time, bye.